Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Long Monday Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts for this episode, Mike Kane, and joined with me today is one of my other co-hosts, Jason Adams. How you doing, Jason? I'm doing good, Mike. How are you doing, man? Doing good. I'm excited for this one because we've got a very special guest and a very special friend of ours, Stephen Craig. Stephen, hey! How's it been, man? How you been? Um, you know, I've, I've been hitting the streaks of trying to make theater be a thing in this weird times, but I, I'm so excited today to be talking to the both of you. It's so refreshing um, and to be talking about some physical theater. Yeah. It's nice to know that someone's trying to do actual theater stuff. I mean, our best bet is just doing this podcast, but it's nice to know other people are attempting to make something of the situation we're currently in. So for those who don't know, uh, Steven has been a friend of ours for a long time. He's done a couple shows at Atlantic Stage with us, um, and so we'll certainly get into that. But I suppose, Steven, for those that don't know you, I ask this of every guest that comes on. If you could just give some background information to yourself, what drew you to theater, what you like particularly about theater, just giving the people some better knowledge of who Steven Craig is. Great. Yeah. So. Um... For me, I got into theater in high school. I was doing a little my, my little band thing in middle school, but my brother told me that I would really get a kick out of doing theater in high school. And I ended up taking a theater class every single semester. Um, they started making theater classes for me. Miss Howard, my, uh, my theater teacher at St. James High School, um, was, would create more theater classes so I could continue to be in theater and then uh she told me i should go to coastal for theater they've got a great program luckily uh coastal carolina university is a local school that had a great program so i was like yes and <laughs> at the time um when i was a senior i was really into improv so that's exactly how i thought about it and i didn't really even apply for any other school i just applied to coastal i got in because i was a good student um and then I began to learn acting and I was really planning on being an actor and I was a BA. So I was getting a, a bachelor of arts as an undergrad until I eventually decided to be a BFA in physical theater, which was a new program that had opened up while I was a student that happened because Joe Diefenbacher was a guest at the school and I took his intro to physical theater class and that kind of changed my trajectory um, helped me understand what physical theater is and, and find that I was fitting it more. And so I went to Italy, I studied Commedia dell'arte in Italy, um, which is a traditional mask theater for anyone who doesn't know. And that more or less led me to, yes, change my major. I went for a second semester there. Um, and then after graduating, I ended up auditioning for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. And so I was a clown for a year and a half, living on the train, going from city to city, new city every week. Um, and I joined before the elephants left. I was there when the elephants left. And then I was there during the final farewell tour as well. And then now I am the technical director of the Maryland Ensemble Theater in Frederick, Maryland. I moved here a couple years after the circus closed. I was doing shows with the two of you at Atlantic Stage when I was uh, local in Myrtle Beach again. And then, yes, yeah, so now I'm up here. Um, I still do some circus performance type stuff. Um, I'll consider a show if it breaks the fourth wall. And 
um yeah that's that's my jam well you say it's your jam but there's certainly a lot that goes into that brief history that you just mentioned um there's a couple things i actually want to point out uh so you just for clarification you mentioned that the physical theater program started when you were at coastal yes okay because it's a pretty prestigious program. Um, if I remember correctly, it's one of the few, if not the, I may be wrong here, but I think it's one of the few single uh, BFA movement programs in the entire nation as far as collegiate academia goes. Is that correct or am I wrong? It was definitely the first physical theater focused undergrad. Okay. I don't know that it is still the only. Yeah. Um, and then there are physical theater master's programs out there but yeah as far as an undergrad program we were it was the first at coastal i i yeah i was in the i was the second year of people to graduate with that degree so the year ahead of me was the first year and they had transferred into that program either in their sophomore or junior year i remembered i transferred in the program my junior year um and so i was the only one my year in that program so i was definitely the fourth person <laughs> to get a BFA undergrad in physical theater. Crazy. People, when you were moving over to that sort of physical theater thing, instead of taking the regular acting background, were, did, I mean, what drew you to it? I guess that's, I mean, was it the improv? Cause you know, you were talking about, you said you were really into improv and really into that, that sort of like thing was the physical theater, the nature of it, the impromptu nature of it um, and the movement of it. I mean, cause it seems like, you know, when you're making a jump as being an actor into physical theater, there's got to be a reasoning for doing it. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes yeah. sense. So I feel like I was very unclear as to the distinction between theater and physical theater. And I feel like I got to speak to that for a second sure, before go I ahead. answer the question. Yeah. Because I did learn, I taught myself how to juggle at a very young age. So as a middle schooler, I was able to juggle. Um, and I remembered specifically people asking me, well, why don't you do physical theater when I was juggling at the juggling clubs on Fridays before common hour and stuff. And I, I didn't really understand why I would want that over wanting to be an actor. Cause I was mm -hmm. thinking that I, I want to be on stage in a theater setting. Really what I had come to learn is that one of the things that draws me to theater is the ability to play in the physical space and that's what physical theater is more about it doesn't come directly from the text the process is the physical exploration and i know that i need that as an actor and mm -hmm. and it's one of the one of the simplest things you do in a rehearsal process for theater is blocking. And I'm a person who, if you give me blocking on the first day of rehearsal, I'm stuck. I'm like, I'm, I'm very, I don't know how to, to play and consider choices of my character. Right. And then, um, to, to go back to answer your question, the time where I know that I decided was I'd already spent a semester in Italy. Um, and it was the end of that semester. And people were preparing to leave and go back home. And that was a very transformative semester for me because that's the time where I saw myself transition from just a student to an artist. And I will always be an artist who's still learning. 
I'm always a student. That's always been part of my identity. But I really, during that semester, identified as an artist. And it was because of the studio time, the massive amount of studio time that that school gave us and allowed us to explore. We had Commedia class, which was our acting class. We had a movement class. We had a voice and diction class. And then we had philosophy, which was mind blowing. And then we had Italian because we needed to learn Italian while we were in, in Italy, obviously. But everyone there grew together at such an exponential rate because we're all living in this villa and exploring this art together. And I was walking back home with like a five gallon jug full of wine that I got from a vineyard. They could just like a gas pump, like shoot wine into whatever mm. jug you bring them. <laughs> and it was so cheap and it's so delicious. So I'm, I'm walking back and I've got one of those jugs and there's a nice kind of sunset on this like shortcut path that's heading back to the villa. And I remember enjoying that moment and realizing that I was going to come back. I was going to go back to coastal, change my major to BFA physical theater, which would have meant I needed another semester at that school. And so that's the distinct moment I made the decision that this is what I'm having for my life. <laughs> you sure that wine didn't help you get there too? <laughs> well, the wine was the celebration <laughs> of that decision later in that evening. <laughs> it coaxed the moment. It, it greased the wheels a little bit for you. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that program of going over to Italy and studying in such a enclosed space and like being surrounded by other people who are there for the same reason. Um, college certainly does that, but to a lesser extent, you're like if Coastal, for example, you know, you're going with a bunch of theater students, but you're also there with a bunch of English and music and business and science and all these other majors. Uh, the closest thing I've ever had to that was my master's degree, where it was literally writing 24 seven with a bunch of writing people and writing students. And uh, to speak to that sort of notion, I mean, you, your artistic credibility and your artistic, artistic sensibilities really accelerate so quickly when you're in that kind of environment. So programs like that, I think, are great. And I've had a lot of friends who have gone through the program as well and just like really enjoyed it. But I mean, if you look back on the history of years of history, it's only been the last couple of years where there was put such an emphasis on movement and the idea that we should study this in like the academic setting. Obviously, you have movement classes, but there was never this notion of like, let's make a whole degree program out of it. Do you have any notion as to why in the last couple of years or last couple of decades, perhaps, that that kind of came about? That That's a difficult question. I, I don't really feel like I'm very well researched. I feel like I am someone who constantly stumbles on what I'm, I'm doing, right? So um, I don't know, like, historically how that might have come about. But I think there's a big realization in the fact that all theater from one mindset is physical theater. I mean, to have theater, there's live actors on stage in front of a live audience, right? Hmm. So a body, bodies move. And there's always been, well, what is your character's physicality, right? So if you've got the Stanislavski or the Udahagen up here in your head and, and you know your objective that's great but you have so many physical habits and if you're going to and raise the bar as an actor then that needs to be part of your skill set 
unless you're consistently playing people who have the same mannerisms as you do. I think this is just maybe just my opinion too, but I've also noticed there was a trend. It feels like in theater too, to do shows that have less dialogue and more physical nature too. I feel like you're, you're noticing that transition and you see it in film, you see it in television, you see it in theater too, where people are, the audience has gotten so good at watching people and what they do and their movements and their body language and theater in some ways has become so intimate because some theaters it's right on top of you, you know, and then also theaters I've been to theaters where they actually project like a football stadium, like screens of the actors on stage, which is kind of weird. Um, but maybe there's, that's got something to do with it too. That the physical nature has become such a more important thing, or maybe it's just a realization that, Maybe it's just a realization that physical nature of what, what actors do and what people do on stage is so important. Um, well, and it yeah. was originally the a big part of theater. I mean, if you think about yeah. Greek theater, you had to have a huge mask. If you think about Commedia dell'arte, the, 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 the people who came to see your troupe recognize stock physicalities of characters that other troops are all performing. So the sure. way that you stand communicates so much to the audience, gets them up to speed on where you are as a player in the space and, and that scenario. Cause yeah. the scenario is something that it's like a, it's like sets of scenes more or less in the Commedia dell'arte. I think a re realization of that necessity and, and an embrace of that which uh, i enjoy i mean i am very rusty on the brain acting techniques <laughs> i feel like if i only had to rely on those i'm not a, a strong actor in that sense anymore but but if i'm relying on the techniques i developed as a physical theater artist then i'm there especially if I'm thinking of myself as a clown, I personally identify as a clown. So every time I tap into that, it's just an extension of myself that I get to play. Well, Steve has talked about this. When we've talked about acting things before Mike, you know, where it's like after a period of time of learning, learning, learning some of the stuff you've learned in the past, you've forgotten, mm -hmm. but your instincts sort of take over because you've developed what works for you and what works on your levels. And so, like you said, yeah, you, the, you're relying, Stephen, on those like things that you've developed and those techniques that you've learned. That's what you're coming back. That's what you bring back to it. Um, and like you say, to be your clown. And I'm guessing that the clown experience certainly influences your theater as well. I mean, they seem like they go hand in hand. Yeah, most definitely. Um, it's really interesting how I play a variation of myself and a lot of my roles. The reason why I stretch my brain in that way is it because it attaches myself to the clown within me and I have those tools I could access if I stretch my brain in that way. And a specific instance would be when we did PIMDAS, Mike, and I had to throw my red hat and catch it that mm -hmm. was something that it's very youthful as red the young high school character that i'm playing but also it gave me ownership of that prop slash costume piece and it 
is the window into the character and the evidence, the physical evidence that I give to the audience that I am that person. Like that's the way my brain thinks. It wasn't, I mean, PEMDAS was such a physical show to begin with. It's such mm -hmm. a zany, crazy show that it kind of has to develop that. Um, wasn't it the choice that whenever you put the hat on, you became red and whenever you had it off, you were speaking as the cell phone or am I incorrect? Yes, that, that was the choice. I think it was a bit more difficult for some of the other characters to have access to that prop. And so like whatever that prop would have been for them. So I don't think it was consistent throughout, but it was a blurred lines set up that way for the audience. Um, I can't remember specifically if I tracked it perfectly or if there might've been an excuse where I couldn't do that, but that was my intention. And for those who don't know, PEMDAS is a show where um, the story is being told through this kid's cell phone. The play itself, the script does not denote lines of who is speaking what, it simply denotes characters. And so uh, Christoph, who was our director on that, he had to decide, you know, what are the movements going to be? Who's speaking what? And I mean, part of understanding that show and making it believable is having, you know, the believability that these humans are taking on the role of a cell phone, which I think movement played a big part in that as well. But speaking of two other shows you did, because I think that they are rooted in movement and they were in recent Atlantic stage history, because I'm always surprised how many of our audience members go, oh yeah, I remember that show, Complete Works of Shakespeare, which obviously a very movement-based show given the sort of comedic elements to it. But I think there were some choices that you also threw in there that were just based upon your teachings and movement and your understanding of movement. Yeah, I immediately see that show as, well, I have to play a ton of different characters. My window into playing a ton of different characters is the different physicalities of that show. And that show already forces you to make quick changes, run backstage and grab this and grab that. And it's that frantic energy that I love in a project. I find, I seem to find a lot of projects that force you to deal with an impossible amount of props, right? I, I was in this kid's show here at the Maryland Ensemble Theater, Go Dog Go. I was the black and white dog, the MC dog. And that, that was another show. There's an impossible amount of props to track in that show. I loved it. So, but anyways, I remember whatever different sets of characters I played, I specifically try to make them different physically where I know Jason, you're great at so many different voices. I, I'm not well practiced in making different voices or having different accents at all. And I, I struggled <laughs> saying one line. I forget what line it was. Didn't I struggle saying a line? I can't remember. I'll be honest with you. I <laughs> you played you played a very beautiful woman, but other than that, uh, you played I was a very trying to have woman. a Jewish accent. I think oh, in yeah. the com in the comedia part because there's like a a comedia part in the show, so that way we can tackle all the comedies as quickly as possible. And I had to say one line with a potential Jewish accent. And I was always overthinking it whenever I got to that part and. There were, I only got it right half the time and the other half the time I would butcher it. And Jason, you have to give me like some weird look like I can't do accents or something. And I might not be saying it right if Jewish accents is not the right way to, to It was a Yiddish. That. I think Yiddish is what you were going to say. Yeah. There was some, yeah. There was some part where you had to speak like in something like a Yiddish. For, and it was like a phrase too. It was like literally like an oy vey or some kind of phrase like that. It was and it was phrase. It was all over the place. It was like, you'd be like, oy vey. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> 
but I think it played that show. If anybody's familiar with that mm-hmm. show, it's such an idiot. It, it's basically the best way to play it is it's essentially it's like you're watching all of Shakespeare's plays, but imagine three idiots trying to play all of Shakespeare's plays. But when you read the script, you realize the three guys who are actually doing this are, are pretty much geniuses when it comes to they know they know Shakespeare. But the idea is that the audience is watching three idiots try to play every single Shakespeare play and their sonnets um, within a 90 minute piece. And so I think you messing up the line probably actually played how great it was. Cause it would, I think what, we, what got good about it is that's the show where I think you have to have three people who like working with each other. Yeah. And uh, it was you, me and Mark. And I think there would be times where we would mess up and you could just look at each other and be like, well, you didn't get it tonight, but maybe tomorrow eh, we'll figure it out. You know? Right. And I think the audience appreciates that because it allows them to sort of connect because we've all been in that place where, yeah, you mess something up and it's okay to laugh at it. And I think that's what makes great theater. Uh, but you're right. That physical nature of that show, you really did like physically embody like all those characters, like your transitions from playing like a dude to a woman was always crack me up. Uh, <laughs> it's like you come out and be like, Oh, and you leave, come stage and be like, ah, like just right back on stage. It was just hilarious. Sometimes those moments were just great just to see. Yeah. And I climbed the side of the, um, Oh yeah. Seat bring that up. Yeah. As the balcony scene, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And I'm, I think my line is dude, what are you doing? <laughs> the balcony scene. <laughs> and this for audiences who don't know, this was back when we were in 79th, where you were literally, if you were on that railing, like you were, you were pretty much on top of an audience member at that point. Like yeah. you could literally just like, you know, fall over and fall into them basically. So make, was that your choice specifically, or was that Tom's choice as director? Oh, who, oh, oh yeah. Um, I, I Tom might've, Tom might've had the idea and maybe I cleared it with him too, or I might have just been over there and started kind of climbing um, yeah. during a rehearsal. Um, yeah. The, the other, <clears throat> the other important distinction about that show is the audience is part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a show for me, uh, a clown in the circus knows that the audience is there and sees the magic that is being performed and somehow translates it to the audience. They're the middle person in that world, right? In the complete works of William Shakespeare or, or any of the abridged plays, the audience is present. There's direct address. You're directly talking to them. And there's little snippets of when you are ignoring them, but it's the play within the play. You still as the actor can be aware that they're there. And it's the directly playing with the audience that I feel like I have to have as a performer on stage. I, I don't think I've done a play since rabbit hole which was also at Atlantic stage. And that was January, 2013. I don't think I've done a play that didn't have direct address to the audience or playing with that audience since 2013. It's hmm. pretty crazy. <laughs> well, that slides into the next show I was going to bring up, which is waiting for Godot, which um, was the last show you did at Atlantic stage before moving over to Maryland, um, which very physical role once again. And as you mentioned, there's interaction with the audience because your moment in that show is so directly influenced to the audience. So if you could speak to that as well. I am so thankful for Ben Soda. Um, He asked me to be a part of this piece, right? Well, 
he's the physical theater professor at Coastal, but I graduated the semester before he came to Coastal. And so I was right up in there like, hey, I used to go here. It'd be really cool if like I got to know you. And, and he embraced me and really became a mentor of mine. This particular show, he asked me to be lucky. I was already planning on moving away. I was going to be gone already. And I explained that to him. I said I'd read the script, but it was going to be hard for me to consider it, even though I was flattered. So I think I took a trip because I think I read the script on a plane. I don't know what was happening. Either way, I read the script and more or less decided that if I was going to do this piece, I also need to be a designer. <laughs> So instead of just doing the one thing, I saw in the piece when I was reading it, a tree that I could build that I could climb. And if I could climb that tree during the show, it would be worth it for me. So I extended my stay in Myrtle Beach to do this show. I welded this whole tree. Thankfully, Vincent Masterpaul loaned me his shop and his welding equipment and even donated some spare metal parts for the project. And during my monologue, Lucky's long speech, the idea was I was saying that to the audience. The rest of the play, the audience is, it's not direct address. They're in their own world. But then the moment where I speak what I saw as the truth, Lucky's truth, certainly. It was shoved down the throat to the people that were right in front of me and spewed right out. And I was hanging on a rope and like leaning to where the, the it's like all tied up in the tree and like leaning to where I could fall on the audience member if the rope wasn't there. And then I had climbed up in the tree during the climax of the monologue and then fallen backwards out of it onto the floor, which for me symbolized my character's death. The last time I could share knowledge, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't speak again in the play, but I don't speak again in the world, if that makes sense. In the moment you're talking about, it was the way you played it, at least from my perspective, it was like you were literally being turned off. Like... Greg's character literally went up to you and flipped the switch to turn you off. And then you just kind of like shut down like a robot would. That's right. They had to stop me. That's, that's correct. Mm -hmm. That was, um, it was putting the hat on you that would stop you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you think, you know, it, like you mentioned, um, for those who saw the show and I was sound designer for that show. So I, uh, we were working technically together. You were set designer. I was sound designer. And when you built that tree and said, I'm going to climb in that thing, I'm like, that thing looks like a death trap, man. Like you take one <laughs> wrong step and you're going to get impaled by one of these like metal branches. But every night you just like knew the tree and you could physically climb all over it and be fine. And it's like, and that's object manipulation to me. So as a juggler, anything that I see is an object that can be explored and played with. Right. I, you know, a regular chair can be sat on when it's laying on its side, right. Or balanced on your chin, whatever it is like a little conductor thing, like a conductor stick. I wish I knew the right name is, is object manipulation because it's weighted and you, and you floral it, right? That's, 
it's like a dance, right? That's object manipulation. So this giant tree that I built, I knew where all the branches were. I had to physically explore it as an actor and become familiar with it. And I specifically remember, I mean, I'm in the theater super early every day, especially for that piece, stretching out and everything. There was a long period of times where I was stationary, but leaned over and punched and stuff. But I would climb that tree, go around it in a direction and back in the other direction and fall out of it as my pre-show fight call that I, that I put on myself. And then I would do instructed to dance. So I had a dance where it was slow motion and cathartic and then a dance where it was lightning fast. And so I had to rehearse the lightning fast dance each time because there's still a rope there that I have to, I'm making sure that the rope doesn't get caught or tied up in anything when it's not supposed to in my own blocking, if that makes sense. I just, I just loved every challenge that that play could give to an actor. Those are the challenges that I love to approach. Just, ah, oh, I loved it. The three shows we just talked about too. Um, I think sort of illustrate like the three different challenges too. Like you said, PEMDAS, it was sort of like you were using the object to track your breaks between your characters. Um, Shakespeare was sort of a separation where you could play with the audience and be physically kind of all over the place and a prop heavy show. And then waiting is sort of like you had these giant set pieces that you are physically sort of um, moving around and moving through the space. So I think it sort of pulls together all those elements of that sort of physical theater. You know, it's got like, like tracking your character changes, using massive props, working the space. Um, I guess these are all things that sort of, that's a, it's a good trio of shows to look at what physical performance does, you know, in different types of shows, but also similar types, but completely different in the same way too. Well then Steven, I guess, given that you're now in a position that y your title doesn't necessarily relate to physical theater is a theater title as technical director, but I mean, do you still find yourself throwing in some physical headspace sort of sensibilities into the work you do at the Maryland Ensemble Theater? Always as a technical director, I found it to be an asset to know what the actors want and need. When a show is being mounted and I'm at a production meeting, I'm telling you the first thing you're going to get is this platform because the actors are going to stand on that in rehearsal on Wednesday. Like I, I know that I can enhance rehearsal on this particular day. If I do my job in a certain amount of, in a certain order of operations, a certain amount of steps, but that's how all theater is. Not as not only as an actor, but as any designer in that room, the more you know about everyone else's jobs, the easier it is for you to communicate and work through a project because a theater piece is always lacking time. Always, no matter mm -hmm. what. You're mounting this and we're opening on this day. It's not like we're exploring this and when it's finally ready, we'll show it to somebody. It's no, 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 no. We're going to have an audience on this day. So we're working towards that day. What can we, what's the maximum amount we can do before that time? True. So as a technical director, I do find it to be an asset that I know at least what I would want as an actor in rehearsals so I can explore and make choices. And then also knowing maybe what a lighting designer needs 
and communication from what what set pieces are going to be where um it all can enhance my ability to perform at my position and really i never set out to be a technical director i happen to have building skills because i used to do side projects with my dad growing up i love tools the reason why i love tools it's object manipulation i can take this screw and fix these two random pieces together and they stay together it's like it's it's physical and in the space and i it's like at the end of the day that's done black and white success i was productive or something so I, those skills were seen in me when i took stagecraft at college and the very next semester i was hired tim hartwig was the technical director for the first two years that i worked in the shop and i worked over the summer as well since i was local so i had one-on-one -on -one time with him he was the most influential person i had at coastal carolina university we had such a strong friendship to this day i keep in touch with him he really kept me organized in a in, in a shop but also it brought life skills to me that i wasn't expecting and then also it it gave me a career that's more stable i have the skills right now to be employed by the theater every day honestly i don't really audition because the theaters that i work with they ask for my help as a technician and i deliver and then they're like oh by the way we're doing this other piece it's your cup of tea if you just want a part you could do this part or something and that's that's how atlantic stage has worked for me um they trust in me as an actor seeing me perform before and and knowing that i can show up and also also help them build the set <laughs> right all the benefits that you provide to the theater outside of just being an actor which is right. nice to have it's we've mentioned this before we wear many hats at atlantic stage we're not just actors we're not just designers we do a bunch of different jobs because when you're small theater, that's what you need to do. You don't have a person who's the technical director and you don't have a person who's, you know, the sound guy, you know, we all try it and we all do different things because that's sort of the requirement of the job. So then Steven, I'm just curious in my end, uh, what has your theater been doing during this time? Uh, how are you guys handling it up in Maryland with all this downtime? Okay, I'm excited to share this with you. Well, first of all, this upcoming weekend which actually it'll be after the podcast is released probably but we have one more weekend of the tempest we're streaming a show of the tempest 20th 21st 22nd it's friday saturday at seven and sunday at three essentially what this project is it's our second main stage project we went for it on this piece the vision was there's an actor in the space acting to screens of pre-recorded characters and that is getting live streamed out and so here i am as the technical director it, it there's it's a hard time to even have work calls get like a lot of people in to work together in the space so there's a lot of pressure however what we ended up with is an extremely unique experience for the audience 
and what we ended up with actually is two actors in the tempest prospero and ariel who they are unmasked during the piece our protocols are they are COVID testing and not going out they're isolating themselves as much as they can um and then during the performances they can unmask everyone running tech stuff we have about six people that are as far away as they possibly could be where cameras can't see them there's a couple cameras in the front that are manned that can left and right zoom and pan and there's a wide angle at the front and then a wide angle in the back that can't see the people behind the seats so in some of the shots you can see the actual empty seats that are covered with like moving blankets and tarps and stuff and so this piece was a challenge because not only do you have to think about being successful in the technical elements that are in the space right we have a q lab file running 12 screens but we also have the actors mic'd and sound and video running to a live stream to youtube which is also embedded on our website and then managing how after people buy a ticket they get a link and they're set up to see the show at, at the right time it's a monster um and and one that we are successful on i was very worried about its execution because so much of that is new to a theater there's, this is not the same. We, we were learning skill sets to produce this. Sure. I was learning skill sets to produce this. Um, and then, and then outside of that, this is something that people can catch every Thursday and Friday at nine o'clock. We have met comedy night on Twitch. So it's twitch.tv slash met comedy night. What I do is I zoom with, with the performers. I capture them on, on zoom and feed them through my OBS. And then I change it from looking like anything that resembles a Zoom show. I've got my own background. I've got a different crop for every amount of people that could possibly be in a scene. And then, you know, there's different emotes that pop up if you do different things. We take your suggestions for improv games and react to you. And then if you put emotes in the chat, they actually float up through our screen so that performers and my webcam view could even see that there's emotes popping through. So we have tried to harness as much interaction as we possibly could during our Met Comedy Night performances because that's what theater is supposed to be about. Theater is supposed to, in real time, be able to interact with you. And although we can't hear your laughter on Met Comedy Night, we're doing our best to make this virtual experience to make it its max until you can return to our spaces. And that's what, what we really want to focus on. Anyone out there listening? Yes. Theater is struggling right now, but just general reminder, buy a ticket when they're open and it's safe because theater is cathartic telling real stories on stage, sharing experiences together. It's cathartic for communities. It, it's an essential part of humanity. We can lose technology altogether and still have theater. Or if we still advance the real palpable performance of theater, someone on stage, someone in audience, is something that will continue to exist. It's nice to know that you guys have 
taking approaches like that, even within your space, you still find ways to put on shows, which is really cool. Um, for our bit, this podcast has largely been our response to it, but I just recalled that something we've done recently, you were actually a part of. So you can yeah, speak right, to that. That's right. Yes. Well, how, what was your perspective on the Raven? Since <laughs> people probably recognize your voice and like, I know that voice from somewhere. What is okay. it from? So when I, when I listened to the Raven, I was so enthralled and so about it. And then I heard myself speak and I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> but I think, I think maybe a lot of people have that, like when they hear sure. themselves or yep. something, maybe um, I listened to the talk about that as well. Um, I commend you on the idea that you had. I think that was brilliant timely with the, the with it being october i got so much out of it listening to other people do verses that i that i had tried in a different way and honestly if i had uh if i had more time with it because i was i mean i'm my time was pretty strapped so i did it in excuses excuses Listen. i did it oh i did it <laughs> come on jason you guys <laughs> If you ask me about something, I'm always going to want to have spent more time on it. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm joking with you. But I did it all in a in, in a in a Saturday afternoon, and I feel like I could have spent a week exploring that text, especially after hearing the podcast about it and hearing other people's processes or perspectives of of getting it together. Um, and, and I was just enthralled by the whole bit. And I, I remember listening to it and being excited that theater is being made in a creative way, if that makes sense. Right now we can do this and we are. And that's what theater people are doing. Right now we can't create in our normal way. So we're going to learn and do whatever it takes to kind of still entertain our audiences in the time being. That's what I don't think a lot of people understand is that we're learning new things because there's that much passion. We're still trying so hard to capture you, even though we're dealing with the same pandemic that you are. And it's hard to keep asking for money for donations to keep the theater alive and honestly we want you to do that donate to atlantic stage donate to the maryland ensemble theater but really we're still theater artists are still there for you when you need entertainment that's that's what it is that's what's happening right now that's what you're doing that's what people at the maryland ensemble theater are doing and that needs to be recognized artists are important yeah. And, and I think you said it earlier too, like not just now, but earlier on, like as an artist, you want to create, you know, you just want to keep, you want know, a painter wants to keep painting an actor wants to keep acting. A, a musician wants to keep playing music. You know, it's sort of like you sort of driven to do it all the time. And so, yeah, this is what we sort of came up with. And I, it's awesome looking at what you guys are doing, especially with the Tempest is really cool. Um, so, I mean, everybody's trying new stuff. You know, we have local theaters that are trying new stuff. I mean, they're doing theater in a parking lot. At Broadway, the beach, you know, I mean, theaters are just sort of, they're stepping up to do these sort of things to figure out ways to sort of keep it going, which is what you have to do when the whole world seems like it's up against it because 
they don't know how to do it because you can't be in a tight room, but it's the only way to keep it alive because there's the hope that it will get back to what it is in the future. So people can sit together and laugh in a room and cry. And like you say, be cathartic uh, with each other because it's, it feels good. You need it. People need to be there. Theater is a lot like therapy for the people that do it and for the people that see it. Yes. Completely agree. Yeah. Great points all around. That made me think of something. What is it? So I got to talk about my clowning, but yes, but what that made me think of was my intention as a clown or as an actor. What's important to me is to give a moment to the audience where the only thing that exists is the space between us. And if I feel in a moment that the only thing that exists is the space between me and the audience, I feel like I've captured that. I feel like the audience is in that moment as well. And specifically when I was a clown with Ringling Brothers, my favorite part of the show was pre-show. I had an excuse to be my the the exaggerated version of myself the very silly and playful and fun person that i can be i could be the full extension of that in front of strangers and strangers can be in front of me and i can break their expectations and make them forget about the outside world and just that moment to laugh that moment to be confused that moment to have a realization or have that broken expectation that making you forget about the stresses outside of the room is the therapy that is why I'm an actor, but it's also what I desire to give to my audience. Wow. That was poignant. (laughs) That's that's why I had to think about like something so that's why I had to think about what I wanted to say before we met. Cause I knew that this, this, this is like the cornerstone of something that I was like, I realized what it is. I want to say it. Did you have that moment when you were drinking that gallon of wine in Italy? Was that no. where this, this speech came from? I had no, I, I wasn't there yet. I was not there yet. As a matter of fact, like even in the circus, I was aware of this, but I don't, I feel like it's even more recent than the circus that I could put it into words in that way. Well, sure. a lot of us are feeling that because, you know, we don't have theater at the moment, or at least the way we used to have it. And there's the old adage of you don't know what you have until it's gone. And it's kind of true here is that a lot of my admiration for theater has really increased now that I can't do it as often as I used to do, um, which sucks, obviously. But it's also the knowledge of knowing that what I did in the past meant a lot and what I know for a fact will eventually come back is going to mean even more when it does. The coming back to it as well is is something that I can't wait for. Even though the Met is doing things that are as in in my mind as close as we could get, especially in our state, to to having performances. I miss theater because I miss people. I have always come back to theater since high school because what it is it's a community of people to work with. I haven't made a solo show. I haven't focused on a solo show because being by myself is not interesting to me. What theater does is 
I'm constantly meeting people in a room to create. And it's the shared experience with those other people that I find is my home. Working on this Tempest project was so difficult for me. And I felt so much pressure and I felt so much stress. And I realized that it's not because of the tall ask I was given. I have executed many a tall ask. I say yes to a project and then figure out how to do it later, right? It's because this project, I was doing so much of this work alone. I was by myself. I would email people and then I would go and, and hammer something out and try to figure it out. And I was by myself doing that. And then once I finally got to see the Tempest, like the entire piece, because I was still working on something every day during Tech Week. So I really didn't see a full run, even like the designer run we tried to have. I'm, I haven't seen the full run without in the middle of taking care of something somewhere. When I saw it uh, the, the day after it opened in its entirety, I realized that the character Prospero, what he's experiencing as a character in the piece with all this technology in the room, he's talking to these TVs and he's isolated alone in a dark theater is so strangely what I was feeling in the creation of the piece itself. I was alone. I was looking at my computer, editing all the videos that, that were being played and then running cables by myself sometimes in the theater and then, you know, waiting for other people to show up during tech week and here we go. And, and we're going to have a piece or something. It was, it was so odd. And I miss being in the room with people yeah. for creation. And that's what I don't get to do, even though I'm still working my ass off to make a performance happen. People have been surely missed in the theater space. So, but that's why we have things like this. So we can still interact with those people in some way. And like you did with the Met and the shows you're doing, and there's still interaction with the audience, which is what we're trying to achieve with this kind of thing. Well, Steven, is there anything you'd like to plug on your end? I know you mentioned the show you were doing, but is there anything in your personal space in the online environment that you'd like to plug? I know you have your own show. Over the Hump? Oh, yeah. yeah. Hopefully we'll get to do Over the Hump again. You know, I'll open it back up this November and December over the holidays. Over the Hump is a show where whatever time on Wednesday, it was going to be our Met Comedy Night morning show, but whatever time my guest has on a Wednesday, hump day, I'll have a guest on talk about their career as an artist, the many things they might have been involved with. But during the whole conversation, we have our Zoom room open and invited for calls. So if you know a person and you worked on a piece with them, you could call in and be like, I remember this one time doing this show with you and this thing happened and it was great and whatever. And, and what I found is that energy was reconnecting my guests to some friends they haven't talked to in a while. And right now that was so necessary for, for them. They felt so much positivity from their callers and then continued to talk to them after the lines were closed, after the show was over, after it was closed. And I think, I think audience members to it were, were feeling that energy as well. And so that was really nice. So, and over the hump will be on Met Comedy Night. So that's twitch.tv slash Met Comedy Night. Some of our shows also stream to the Maryland Ensemble Theater Facebook page. 
That show also streams to the Maryland Ensemble Theater Facebook page. Strange Times Indeed is a show that does not stream to the Facebook page. It's only on Twitch. That's every Thursday at 9 with Cliff McAllister. He takes your calls on the strange, the bizarre, the unknown, and listens to your stories. He also sometimes interprets some of my dreams because I have a dream journal. Uh, he <laughs> talks about other conspiracy theories and, and, and other alien encounters on the air while waiting for calls. And it's an exciting experience, especially if you're into bizarre things and UFOs and stuff like that. And then sometimes we have the comedy pigs short form improv troupe. They're doing a great job of making games work in the virtual room. And then actually this Friday night, which I'm sure no one will be able to tune into because the podcast will release later will be Oh crit. So we have a D and D improv troupe that performs mike's mouth watering look at that i know on that comedy speaking my language i just did i just started this new thing so you can we have they have a death balloon you can spend your channel points on a death balloon and it immediately has to kill one of the characters oh wow immediately and so yeah so you can actually change the game as an audience member and 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 each one of our shows it will constantly build if there's more opportunity to have an audience interaction we're working towards building it and putting it in um and so the, and so those are the set of shows on met comedy night uh for me uh, i don't have really much else to plug uh, the maryland ensemble theater we're in a season of surprises so every single one of our shows is it could be a different medium and you could buy a ticket for a show individually or, or buy the season before we go. There is, there is something that I didn't say yet about clowning. And this is very, very important to me as a clown. Clowning is something that I believe everybody does or has done. It is something that is universal. It's recognizable across all cultural boundaries and to put it into perspective for the audience, the listeners here, you know, if I have a pin in my hand and then I hide it under the table and act like it's not there, well, physics, obviously it's there, but the fact that I'm acting like it's not, and I'm acting like it's magic, that's clowning. So, so a child doing that could be, said is he's being silly he's being playful but the actual definition of it in my head is clowning and and everyone has had moments either in their youth or even continuing into their adult where they do that and i i always see that the youth are the best at play freeform play where there's no rules but there are rules that are always changing and you just have to know them without talking about them that kind of play kids know how to do perfectly and it's that kind of play that I always try to tap into as a clown. And it's that kind of play that people are familiar with. They've done it before, whether or not they know it. And that's what's what is recognizable in the clown. And that's why clowning is so universal. Mm. I had to say that. I had to throw that in there. Everyone's a clown. Yeah, my parents used to say, quit clowning around, Jason. I used to have that phrase a lot. I've heard that a few times, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or I roll I roll my eyes sometimes at it now, you know? <laughs> well, great. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. It was very nice to talk to you. That was so great to talk to you. I'm so glad I'd I'd be happy to do it again. And of course, I I I still want to talk to you about that episode you recorded with Steve about the acting teacher thing. Mm-hmm. Still, I don't have to post talk with you. <laughs> well, uh, we're always looking to follow up on a lot of our episodes, so could be a season two episode down the line. Um, all right, all right. I, I I'll save what I have to say for for a season two episode. All right, I'll keep you on call though. Speed dial. Yeah. Anything from you, Jason? Got anything to add? No, I'm good, man. I'm good. All right, perfect. Well, thank you once again, Stephen. Uh, many now know about the Mets, so maybe you'll get some viewers from us and cross-promotion as it were, so this is great. Uh, and then just talking to a friend, it's nice to know that other people are doing theater. We're not the only ones trying to make it happen. Yeah, and you know what? I'm excited to share your podcast. I obviously shared the Raven that was sent out, and after listening to several episodes of it, I, I'm excited to share, of course, my episode with my friends, but I hope it picks up because there's a lot of good stuff that you're talking about, and it's a great reminder to to hear about it because theater still exists in our head and was like we can we can live there again if we're listening to this podcast so it's great thank you so much for doing this thank you thank you man man. all right thanks for listening everyone and we'll uh see you next time take care bye